Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and bailing twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today I'm chatting with Noah Rothbaum and David Wondrich, authors of The Oxford Companion to Spirits and Cocktails. They tell us about the medicinal history of cocktails, the invention of Long Island iced tea, and the colorful characters who left their mark on the art of bartending. Let me paint a picture of Jerry Thomas's uh, biggest bar that he had in New York in the 1870s. You walked in and there was a, a life-size statue of him pouring drinks from one mug into another. And Jerry Thomas himself had a pet white rat, right, two. that would sit on his shoulder. Yeah, two pet white two, rats two that uh, loitered on his shoulders and ran up and down over his bowler hat while he was mixing drinks. Also coming up, we use pantry ingredients to make a no-cook noodle sauce, and Adam Gopnik reviews the pleasures of cooking and eating with your hands. But first, it's my interview with composer and jingle writer Michael Levine. Michael may be best known for writing one of the greatest jingles of all time, Kit Kat's Give Me a Break. Michael, welcome to Milk Street. Why, thank you. So you've worked on scores for some pretty big movies, Dunkirk, the Simpsons movie, Batman, and some others. But today we're talking about jingles. So in the 1980s, DD&B Advertising was going to do a jingle for the Kit Kat bar, but then they called you. <laughs> well, Chris McHale was the music producer at Doyle Dane Bernbach, and 
I had sent him a demo tape of stuff, and he called me up, and he was very apologetic because the agency already had a jingle that they wanted to sell the client. It was called Kit Kat Crazy, I think with a K for the crazy. So he very apologetically told me this was a cannon fodder campaign is the term. Hold on a second. So they already written lyrics and they already had music for the version they thought was going to be the the winner. Right. They had done very expensive demos with Dr. John and Phoebe Snow, and it was they were all ready to go. But the problem is you can't just show your client one idea. You have to show them one that they can reject so that they embrace (laughs) the idea that you want to sell them. Of course. So they had gotten a junior copywriter named Ken Schuldman, and he gave me a couple pages of ideas, and I pointed out, I said, oh, give me a break, break me off a piece of that Kit Kat bar, yeah, okay, uh, how, why don't we go with that? And we all kind of liked it because give me a break was a sarcastic way of saying, you know, want something, and, right. you know, we were a bunch of arrogant young jerks, and we thought it was funny. And so I got in the elevator, and by the time I got out on the first floor, the jingle was written. And I'm a... A pretty good violinist, uh, an okay keyboard player, and a very inept guitar player. But it felt like a guitar song. So I picked up the phone and I I called Ken Schuldman and said, look, I'm a really terrible guitar player, but I I think this is working. See if you agree. And I played him down the song and he uh, says, you're right. You really are a terrible guitar player. (laughs) But he liked it. And so, okay, so you do this. Then all of a sudden it turns out that the client likes this better than the original? Well, the client already liked it well enough to want to record this, and they then put it into test. And it beat the campaign that Doyle had been working so hard on. They said there must be something wrong with the test, and they did it again, and it did even better. And so at that point, they went, okay, I guess it's give me a break time, and the campaign was launched. So I assume, since it's still running today, that did sales take off immediately? Was it a sort of a slow build? Uh, I don't know the answer to that in terms of the curve. I do know that I was told that as a result of the success of the campaign, they had to build a new Kit Kat factory. I think I think that answers the question. But you, you have to realize that at this point, this is 1986, I'm guessing, jingles were considered old-fashioned and hopelessly unhip. It, it would be like, you know, singing big band music on television in 1969 when Woodstock was happening. I mean, it was considered like so just, you know, really, you're doing a jangle? But people liked it. So you talk a little bit about why you think this was so successful. And you mentioned the term cognitive dissonance. That is, give me a break is sort of a negative saying. Right. And yet the ad's full of smiling people holding up a Kit Kat bar. So is, is you think that's important? I think Malcolm Gladwell also had a point of view about this. Well, right. I, I think that his theory, which I think has a lot of truth to it, is that the most memorable advertising slogans and actually many other things are those which contain a kind of contradiction or something that bugs you, that your mind keeps going over it because it's not quite right. The classic one he used as an example was in the 50s, the slogan, Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. At the time, it was considered grammatically incorrect. It, Winston tastes good as a cigarette should would have been grammatically correct. And the slight hip misuse of grammar is what made that a, a successful campaign, in his opinion. And I think that Give Me a Break was like that as well. I mean, you know, some of these things have only peripherally to do with music. They have to do with, does the campaign resonate? Is the product successful? Uh, I mean, a few of my jingles, well, one in particular was for Tropicana Juice Sparkler, which was this sparkling 
beverage that unfortunately blew up on shelves, <laughs> and uh, it was Great. proved to be a real, real, real problem for the, the the manufacturers. We took juice that there is, and added magic sparkling fizz. Now the world, now the world isn't flat, isn't flat anymore. Chuck the can and juice sparkler. So that one kind of died a horrible death in terms of the use as a jingle, but it had nothing to do with the music. So are there other jingles, maybe things you've not written, that really resonate with you that you think are particularly clever or powerful? Well, I think that jingles have a lot in common with nursery rhymes uh, because they're very succinct and generally fairly simple. And so the ones I tend to remember the most are ones I knew as a kid, uh, like N-E-S-T-L-E-S, Nestle's makes the very best chocolate. And it, it's a, this clever thing because it kind of goes up, and then it goes down, and then it does one last, uh, and it really is almost like a nursery rhyme. Right. But now when you hear jingles, most contemporary jingles have a kind of jokey, winky quality to them. And, you know, that fits this mood today. I don't think that that's going to have the staying power that something like uh, I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, wouldn't you like to be at Pepper too? which is by Jake Holmes. I mean, I think the jingle should come back. I really do. I mean, I, I just think it's, it's iconic, but it, it has not been used to its full extent in modern culture. Well, if you look at something like Kit Kat, because of the fact that everybody can sing that song, 35 years after it was written, people, it still sells the product even when you're not, don't have a commercial. I mean, that, that's, that's the power of jingles is because they are memorable. They are these earworms that will continue to remind people that the product exists, which in an overstimulated world is half the battle. So over the years, did they refresh the jingle with different singers and different scoring? There have been many versions of it, everything from country-western versions with Carrie Underwood. Chance the Rapper doing a rap version. In fact, there was a study taken at the University of Cincinnati some years back about the worst earworms, and Kit Kat was named the third worst earworm, like, you know, drove people third most crazy. And and that would be a little embarrassing, except number one was We Will Rock You. And to be in the same category as We Will Rock You is actually a great (laughs) honor. Michael, thank you so much. I, I love Give Me a Break Jingle, and all the best. Thank you. Lovely talking to you. You can keep it to yourself, but it wouldn't be fair Cause that chocolate crispy taste is loved everywhere That was composer and writer of Kit Kat's Give Me a Break, Michael Levine. Now it's time for me and my co-host Sarah Moulton to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. So, Chris... Recently, I saw the um, Julia Child documentary called Julia that was done by the same people who did the RBG one. It's a great documentary, mainly just because Julia was so great and it's so much fun to watch. But uh, I saw an interview with the two directors, two women, and the food in this is amazing. Susan Spungen did all the food. She's the same person who did the food for Julie and Julia. And you just are so hungry by the time the thing is over. And so the two directors were interviewed, and they were asked what was their favorite dish. And they both said the same thing, which is Julia apparently made roast beef a lot. I did not know that, but just good old-fashioned. I, I had roast at her house. Roast leg of lamb. She liked that a lot. Well, yeah. lamb makes sense. I yeah. just didn't know about the roast beast, as we call it in my house. Uh, I remembered salad niçoise. You know, every time we, we had lunch, it was salad niçoise. But when she made the roast beef, she would cook up some boiling potatoes and then peel them and then scrape them with the side of a fork and throw them back into the roasting pan while the oh. roast rested. So they get a great... So that grating on the outside of the potatoes made them get a crust and absorb the fat Mm. in a way they wouldn't have. And I thought to myself, wow. I missed that. Yeah. Did you see the documentary? No, did not. 
Yeah. Well, I never knew about that. Huh. But both of these directors who they're not cooks, first and foremost, said that was something hmm. they just started doing. I thought that was fascinating. Well, the few times I did go over there for dinner, the food was, you know, basic. We had boiled new potatoes and caviar and wine one night <laughs> or a leg of lamb, you know, roast leg of lamb and some potatoes or whatever. It was very straightforward. Yeah, wasn't fancy. Food. I remember once she had a book party for a friend of hers who had written a gardening book. And she had, you know, Swedish meatballs and like melted grape jelly <laughs> with toothpicks, wow. you know, Swedish meatballs. Yeah. And I was going like, this is so 1956. Yeah. But it was, you know, that was kind of her milieu, right? Yeah. She grew up, you know, outside of L.A. And so that was part of who she was. She did have that American thing, too. And we forget, we always think about fancy French food. Yeah. But I, I like the simplicity of it. The kitchen was never a mess. That's what I love about a great cook. It's just there's not too much. It's just right. Everything's, you know, done and yeah. simple. And you can sit there and enjoy the alcohol and the conversation, which is why you're there. Right. Right. Absolutely. So, for the conversation. Yeah. So yeah. I, that's one of the reasons I still love Julia. Yes. Let's take some calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Tom from Providence. Hi, Tom. How can we help you today? My wife is Ukrainian and I'm Polish. And so I end up making a lot of pierogies or dumpling adjacent um, <laughs> little things. And I have found that making sort of big batches of really any type of dumpling, that when I make the dough, my yield on how many wrappers, essentially, I'm able to get is always like three quarters of what the recipe suggests. I guess I was curious if you guys had any ideas of, like, what I could be maybe doing wrong. The most important question is, how do your dumplings come out? Do you like them? Are they good? Are they tender? Oh, they always turn out well, but it ends up being sort of like a, a mass sort of logistics thing because it's a labor-intensive process, so I'll make maybe, you know, double the recipe, say, at a time. It becomes a more complicated mass with sort of the filling, and then it's like juggling a bunch of fractions, which can be right. a Right. Oh, my God. Have, like, what a nightmare. Egg, egg, I, right. I hear you. Yeah. yeah. Are you rolling them thin enough? We have a pelmenia, which is like the honeycomb kind of thing to roll it onto. Mm -hmm. And if you roll it too thin, they just fall apart. Yeah. And so the thickness that I've been able to get like a feel for is as thin as I can get it that will stretch across some percentage of the surface of it. But it always ends up like eventually it shorts it. The filling, as I understand it, is generally some sort of ground meat filling? Usually, yes. I would imagine if you made more of the meat filling than you needed, like do two and a half times the recipe of the ground meat filling and two times the recipe of the dough. And if you did have a little bit of the ground meat filling, I'm sure it would freeze nicely, you know, rather than having to do all that math. But let's see what Chris has to say. Two things to say. Congratulations, because getting three quarters of the yield is actually really good. <laughs> because the people who wrote the recipe started doing this when they were 12. You know, it's like rolling out phyllo dough in Turkey. It's like it takes years to figure this out. The fact that you got three quarters of the way there, I think, is actually extraordinary. The people who wrote the recipe, they have PhDs in this, so don't worry about it. And as you said, you can't roll it out any thinner because then it's going to break up when you put it on the mold, the honeycomb thing. So just live with 36 instead of 48, for example, and then adjust your filling to match the lower numbers of wrappers you have. But nothing's wrong. You're doing a great job. Okay. So yeah. As long as it's not just me. It's not, no, no, it's not you. No. It's not you at all. You should get a blue ribbon or something. I yes. Guess. So good for you. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Thanks so much. Yes. Bye-bye. Yeah. I probably would have gotten about half as many. Yeah, me too. And I probably would have rolled them too thick and the stuffing would have come out. I didn't want to say just go buy them. Oh, no, that would have been awful. I know, I know. Well, that's probably what I would have done. <laughs> this is Mill Street Radio. Sarah and I are here to answer your questions, so just give us a ring anytime. That number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or just email us at questions at MillStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Greg calling. Where are you calling from? Berlin, Vermont. Okay. Your preferred caller. You're calling from Vermont. <laughs> yeah. Special status. Yeah. How can we help you in the kitchen? I 
in calling about trying to pre-wash vegetables before roasting and still trying to achieve a good caramelization. I'm finding, particularly with cauliflower, that if I you know, give it a wash before putting it in the oven to roast, it's not coming out particularly caramelized. It's got kind of a soggy consistency, and that could happen with eggplant or, you know, Brussels sprouts. Is there some way in which I can still pre-wash the vegetable and get it to caramelize? You've broken it up into florets or whatever. You wash it, and then how are you drying it? I'm washing the entire cauliflower, uh, shake it to dry it, or, you know, use a kitchen towel or something like that. And what temperature are you roasting at? 400. I would get that up to 475. And secondly, I would really, I'd use a salad spinner and use a couple of towels or paper towels and really get them dry. A lot of people are roasting their cauliflower whole, you know, steam it or boil it for three minutes, dry it off, and then roast it whole wrapped in foil. That's an Otolenghi recipe. Or we also slice it into steaks and put it on a tray and roast it at very high temperatures. So I think both of those things would solve the problem of sogginess. Sarah? Yeah, I'm going to throw in, I agree with everything Chris said. But one other thing I just wanted to suggest is when you do put them in the oven on the sheet pan, make sure you're not crowding them because that could prevent caramelization too because they're too crowded so they steam instead of roasting properly. Is this a problem with other things other than cauliflower or just cauliflower? Yeah, I've noticed it as well with Brussels sprouts and eggplant, but I think the main problem I could have been running into there is washing off the eggplant when they were already cut up into oh. the Oh, pieces. no, 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 yeah. you wouldn't, because they're sponges. Right. Like, no wonder that was a problem. I've now rediscovered eggplant. You know, in the last 10 years, that's the most important thing in my life. You can take a whole eggplant, put it on a burner, or you could do it on a grill better, and just cook it till it basically collapses, and then you scoop it out, and it's just amazing. I mean, you can make, obviously, baba ganoush out of it. You can add lemon juice. You can add tahini. You can add pomegranate molasses. Another thing to do with eggplant, the smaller ones are better, slice them in half, put them in the oven, a very hot oven, until they're really, really soft inside. And then you can put a little pomegranate molasses on it and a few other things and put it back in the oven and broil it just for a few minutes. You get a really nice caramelized crust and then a few herbs on top to serve. But boy, that is, uh, yeah. ooh. you know, oven roasted or grilled eggplant is just, so I mean, in the Middle East, they do a million things with it. But anyway, give that a shot. I think that should work. Yes. So, Greg, thanks for thanks calling. Thanks for calling. Yes. Thank you very much. I've got some ideas now. All right. Okay. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're investigating the origins of the cocktail. That's right up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, Man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie. Capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar 
we also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce it's like lettuce rice pork sip of white lettuce rice pork sip of white and it's just perfection my other top choice was like a hot dog like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white you don't need to dress it up there's something about mussels with beer especially the white that is just so good I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Noah Rothbaum and David Wondrich. They're the authors of The Oxford Companion to Spirits and Cocktails, almost 900 pages covering the history of alcohol. Noah and David, uh, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having us. Nice to be here. So are you guys insane? Uh, this book is like, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like you decided to write Wikipedia in a month or well, something. What? I'll say if I wasn't insane when I started this thing, I certainly am now. Yeah. So. <laughs> So let's talk about cocktails and the origin of cocktails. Why was there a demarcation sort of before the cocktail and after the cocktail? What happened? Well, <laughs> that's another 900-page book. Okay. But yeah. yeah, you know, as soon as uh, distilled spirits were widely available, people drank them and people tried to find ways of mixing them. But uh, the, the cocktail was originally just one drink. It was bitters mixed with uh, sugar and booze. And it goes back to the 1600s in London. Usually, uh, it was uh, you drink it for a hangover, because the bitters were supposed to help your stomach. <laughs> you know, this is before Pepto Bismol or anything hmm. like that. So, uh, can, I, can I stop you for a second? So, yeah. So, so where, where did the bitters in cocktail were bitters used for other things? Oh yeah, like like as a uh, medicinal were, use. Exactly, they were medicine. You know, and, and a lot of the the brands that we know today, a lot of them started out originally being prescribed for different maladies, you know, a range of them. Or all of them. Yeah. <laughs> so how did they get into a cocktail? Well, there was uh, this British apothecary. Uh, this guy uh, had the bright idea of pre-mixing bitter herbs right. and alcohol and bottling it so that uh-huh. you could pour it into your wine or beer, and uh, that would settle your stomach. Eventually, this gets the name cocktail attached to it, which was a word to mean like stick your tail up like this will make you stick your tail up in the morning it will wake you up and make you frisky so uh the idea of uh, you know little bitters and spirits was a, a pick me up an eye opener a corpse right. reviver 
all those terms, uh, or a cocktail. And to be fair, like alcohol itself originally was thought to be medicinal, right? right. Most of the words that we have for different types of alcohol go back to the idea of the water of life, right? Aquavite, mm-hmm. whiskey is like a bastardization of the Gaelic Ishgabaha, which means water of life. So, I mean, there, a lot of the original distillers were huh. sort of alchemists who were looking for some kind of water of life. How about some origin stories for alcohol? I, you talk about absinthe, which is so interesting, but I, I heard the story that it was banned in Paris or France because somebody got really drunk came home and murdered his family or something, and they blamed absinthe. Yeah. So, so what was that story? <laughs> I know what Dave's going to say. Well, it was a guy had uh, drunk a whole gang of absinthe and, yeah, and indeed murdered his family. So they blamed the botanicals in the absinthe and not the fact that he'd had, like, right. 10 drinks of 120-proof right. alcohol, which is, <laughs> that's a lot. You know, it, it was, I think, more of an alcohol problem right. than a botanical problem. And there were there was powerful opposition to uh, absinthe at the time from France's uh, grape growers and uh, oh, okay. uh, brandy makers also. So it was there was a lot of politics behind that. But even for some of the spirits that like we kind of thought we knew their histories, it turns out we either knew part of their mm. histories or in fact we didn't know their histories really at all. <laughs> Like rum, actually, the history is fascinating and goes back probably a thousand years, you know, longer than we ever thought. Rum is a very broad name. You know, uh, rum is basically the whole world of spirits in the key of sugarcane. You've got things that are as neutral as vodka, and then you've got others that are as heavy and funky as uh, old rye whiskey. Hmm. So the old-fashioned, which is my favorite because I'm kind of boring— uh, just describe that because I, I knew about half the history, but you actually flushed this out pretty well. Yeah, the, the old fashioned is the original cocktail. Towards the end of the 19th century, people were uh, putting like all kinds of crazy things like vermouth and citrus juice in their cocktails. And some boring old codgers like myself said, hey, I want mine the old fashioned way. Right. So it was a, a lump of sugar, a splash of water, some dashes of bitters pour in a shot of booze, give it a quick stir, and down the hatch. I love this description because I'm not kind when it comes to a badly made old-fashioned. You're talking about the 1940s. It was often over-sweetened and made further flaccid, which I think is a perfect description. With the addition of a muddled orange wheel and the smashed remains of a processed maraschino cherry. And then you say, some say that this practice started during Prohibition to mask the taste of the bad booze. Well, that... That's a great explanation for something I could never understand, messing up a great simple cocktail. Well, you know, people never leave well enough alone. That's the problem. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you your favorite cocktail, but I am going to ask, are there, is there a cocktail out there that was amazingly good, sounded awful, something oh, yeah. that surprised you in putting this together? Well, one of the, one of them that I came across uh, while I was working on the book was this thing called the modern cocktail. And it was uh, invented in the 1890s by a guy who tended bar at a uh, social club in Bradford, Pennsylvania. Anyway, it's uh, scotch whiskey, slow gin, a little bit of lemon juice, just a spoonful, a little bit of sugar, orange bitters, and a dash of absinthe. That sounds absolutely crazy and disgusting, but it's so <laughs> delicious. Hmm. Where I was going to say, it reminds me of also the the Blood and Sand, which has one of the worst names for a cocktail, which is scotch, orange juice, brandy, cherry, Ugh. vermouth. I mean, it doesn't sound like it would work at all. And in fact, it might sound like your mouth would be filled with blood and sand. But I, I actually right. like the blood and sand. I don't. I don't think Dave does. I, I prefer the modern uh, action. <laughs> but, uh, but they're connected. But again, it's it's a weird thing. Yeah, they're where, weird. They're weird drinks uh, that just don't sound right. But they but they are very good. I, I think though that's one of the through lines for the history of cocktails and spirits is the amazing curiosity of bartenders. Right, <laughs> like this whole idea of like. We have an old-fashioned, right? And we'll add uh, this new thing called vermouth. You know, maybe if we swap the whiskey for gin, oh, like now we have a martini. And it's like this constant curiosity about new ingredients, new techniques, 
So let's talk about bartenders because I know you guys love bartenders. I only know one guy, Harry Craddock, which of course is the only one an amateur like me would have heard of. So who who was he? Talk about the American bar at the Savoy and, and that story. Well, Harry Craddock was an Englishman who came to America and claimed he mixed the last legal drink before Prohibition because he was still working as a bartender in New York at the stroke of midnight, 1920. And then uh, he lobbied very hard to get to the Savoy Bar in uh, London. And the head bartender was a woman by the name of Ada Coleman. She was edged aside and uh, he ran the bar for another 15 years. And really, uh, it was the watering hole for Americans in London and for cocktail lovers. And his his book, the Savoy Cocktail Book, uh, which I do have, is that still considered a classic of the genre and one worth buying? Oh, very strongly, yes. It's one of the vintage cocktail books that's always been in demand. It really is an Art Deco masterpiece, but it also contains a compendium of what people were drinking. You know, things that Craddock made, you know, that, that Ada Coleman was famous for her hanky-panky drink, which she had invented. It's got like a thousand drinks in it. I mean, it's, yeah. it's got so many drinks. So I guess a lot of people have heard of Craddock, but uh, are there some other bartenders people probably have never heard of that sort of struck your fancy as you were doing research? Yeah, one of, one of the guys was uh, the great Jerry Thomas, who wrote the world's first bartender's guide and was the dean of American bartenders. He was quite the character. In New Haven, he worked as a an apprentice at his brother's bar and then ran off to sea for a few years and then jumped ship in California during the gold rush and uh, made a whole lot of gold and uh, spent it all in about three months. Let me paint a picture of Jerry Thomas's uh, biggest bar that he had in New York in the 1870s. You walked in and there was a, a life-size statue of him pouring drinks from one mug into another. There were huge pictures of him mixing drinks painted two stories high on the walls of the place. In the basement was a shooting gallery where you would go and shoot 22 <laughs> rifles against young ladies who were very good shots. And uh, the drunks who hung out in the bar would go down there and they'd be very upset to lose to these young ladies. So they'd demand a rematch. And so they made a lot of money off of that. Um, <laughs> There was it was pretty much full spectrum entertainment there. And Jerry Thomas himself had a pet white rat, right? Two. That would sit on his shoulder. Yeah, two pet white two, rats two of that them. Sorry, two of them. Uh, loitered on his shoulders and ran up and down over his bowler hat while he was mixing drinks. <laughs> and then there were I mean, there are all types of unsung heroes, you know, for, for some of the less glamorous drinks. Like we tell the story of, you know, the Long Island iced tea and What what is that story? <laughs> Well, I'll let Dave tell it. You grew up on Long Island, so I, I think it's fair yeah. that you tell that story. Yeah, it was uh, It was this guy worked at the Oak Beach Inn in Oak Beach, Long Island, out in Suffolk County, which was uh, a beachfront take-it-easy bar. And uh, they had a cocktail contest one day for the bartenders uh, to, to mix drinks using triple sec. And he won by grabbing all the white liquors in the well and pouring them into a glass, adding a dash of triple sec. A splash of Coke and a splash of sour mix, and it tasted like iced tea. <laughs> it became very popular. Uh, you know, what's the difference between a really good bartender and a good bartender? Are there skills or techniques that set the great ones apart from the good ones? Well, a really good bartender makes the same drinks as the good one, but knows all the jokes. I knew you were going to say something like that. Yeah, but I mean, really, it's true. Uh, The the drinks themselves are the easy part. The hard part is the personality, the the social engineering that a great bartender has, where they turn a bar full of unrelated strangers into a a group of friends sitting around and having drinks together. Boy, I I remember years ago, uh, the great Dale DeGroff, who's sort of the father of the rebirth of the cocktail, had... You know, one of these brands had hired him in New York for a cocktail festival. He's working in a room, and I walked in, and the room was buzzing. Dale was having, you know, three, four, five, six conversations at once. Everybody had a drink. As soon as his shift was over, another, like, 
incredibly talented, accomplished bartender came on, but who did not have that social mm-hmm. gene. <laughs> and right. the drinks were were equally wonderful, but the room died. Like everybody left because they just didn't have that same buzz. That innate sense of knowing what each guest wants, you know, who needs to be introduced to who, who needs to be left alone, who needs a little sympathy, advice. And that's just an amazing skill. And, uh, you know, during the height of the pandemic, that's what I missed the most. I can't make drinks like the best bartenders, but I can make drinks that are close enough. But uh, that other part, there was just very little of that. Thanks, guys. Uh, It's been a real pleasure. I can't believe we didn't do this in a bar. Uh, (laughs) But thanks so much for being on Milk Street. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. The pleasure's been ours. Next time, drinks are on us. Absolutely. (laughs) Old fashions. Of course. That was Noah Rothbaum and David Wondrich. Their book is The Oxford Companion to Spirits and Cocktails. You know, they're wine people and then they're cocktail people. Wine people have a scholarly approach to drinking. The vintage, the terroir, the grapes, it's all very hush-hush. Cocktail people, on the other hand, throw out the rules to make a cocktail for every occasion. Rum punch on the beach, an old-fashioned after work, a zombie or Mai Tai on Saturday night. Even the sacred martini has been subject to thousands of variations from dirty martinis to the Vesper. So if you drink just for the fun of it, have a cocktail. If you drink to be a connoisseur, enjoy a glass of wine. And just remember that the two never mix. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, ginger hoisin noodles. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. Okay, so like most people, sometimes I have 10 minutes to make dinner. And I've figured out dipping sauces or noodle sauces. But I want something a little different, a little more complex. What do you have? Well, this hoisin ginger noodle is exactly what you're looking for. This dish really personifies what I consider a classic Milk Street pantry dish. Um, It draws on a really important ingredient that has a ton of flavor. In this case, that's hoisin, which is a Chinese sauce that you can use as a glaze, a dipping sauce, a marinade. It's sweet, it's salty, it's savory. It's kind of a one-ingredient umami bomb. Is this just a question of cooking, I don't know, udon noodles, soba noodles, whatever, and simply mixing them with a sauce? Or is that it? Literally all it is. It is about as quick as it gets. You boil some noodles, which take, you know, 10 minutes or so, maybe less. Linguine, udon noodles, lo mein noodles, whatever you've got in the pantry. And while that's boiling, you whisk together a sauce of hoisin, another one of our favorite Milk Street pantry ingredients, chili garlic sauce, soy sauce, sesame oil, and then a little bit of freshly grated ginger that gets all mixed together. Toss that with the noodles, then top it with some chopped scallions. You could also add some chopped peanuts. You could put in some grated carrot, some wilted cabbage. Top it with an egg if you want a little more protein. It's kind of like a whatever you've got around, throw it in there. So this is one of those master recipes, like soy sauce, mirin, and sugar. And it has a lot more complexity to it than what I usually use, but it's very simple. This is cook what you have kind of recipe, but using some of these really powerful ingredients that really pack a lot of flavor in them, like hoisin and chili garlic sauce. So hoisin ginger noodles takes as much time as it does to boil the noodles, (laughs) which is my perfect pasta recipe. And it tastes great. Lynn, thank you very much. You're welcome. You can get this recipe for hoisin ginger noodles at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik explains why touch is an undersung sense in the kitchen. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. 
a hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Malt and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Keela calling from Pacific Palisades, California. Well, how nice. How can we help you today? I was very excited to receive a beautiful gift of Raguso Classico olive oil from the region of Potenza, where my family is from but it's this gigantic three liter container. And I try to buy my olive oil in small bottles because I, you know, it goes rancid so quickly. And I just don't know how to store this if I open it. The first thing is you got to start going through it. I'm sure you know that. Uh, oh, I will. <laughs> some people say you got to get through that in three to six months. Other people say even in a shorter period of time. So that is stressful. I hear you. Yeah. There's three enemies of olive oil, as, as I'm sure you also know, which is light, heat, and air. So a tin can is a good place to store it as long as you keep it in a cool, dry place, away from the light and away from the heat. If you are going to start using it, how quickly will you go through it? I would say within four to six months. Well, you might be fine. What you might want to do is get smaller bottles and decant it. What would be ideal, again, is another tin thing with a lid to put it into because that's the best to keep away the light. But if you don't have one of those, just put it into a smaller bottle. Uh, the other thing you could consider is gifting some of it to friends. Could I just put it like in a ball jar? Well, it'd be better if you could. It would be a colored, you know, something darker because, again, the light coming through. Oh, the through. light. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so if okay. you could find a colored glass. But I don't know. Let's hear what Chris has to say. I totally agree with Sarah. Keep it out of light and keep it in a very cool place. I've stored olive oil for months in glass bottles in my basement, and it's been fine. I don't like metal so much. I think glass is better or ceramic. I have a ceramic crew that I actually use, which is great. And the bottles can be clear glass as long as they're, you know, in a dark cupboard. In the dark. Then it doesn't matter. It does if it's exposed to light. 
I also agree with Sarah. I think I would put it into smaller bottles if you can. Fill it right to the top so there's no air. Make sure it's sealed properly with a stopper of some kind. And put it in a very cool, dark place. And then I would do a lot of fried food <laughs> in the next six months. Yeah, well. I'd be frying everything in <laughs> olive oil. But uh, I don't know. I mean, cool, dark place. Yeah, I'll put it in the garage somewhere dark and cool. What a great present, by the way. Yeah, how nice. Oh. I want friends like that. Kayla, you're lucky. I am very lucky. And thank you. I love your podcast. And Sarah, I've been following you for a long time. So it's been fun talking. And thanks for the good advice. Yeah, thanks for calling. Thanks, Kayla. Okay. Yes. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you're looking to change the way you cook, give us a call anytime. That number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or just email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Cindy, and I'm calling from Stillwater, Oklahoma. Hi, Cindy. How can we help you today? Hi, Sarah. I'm wondering why tahini seizes when you add water to it. Yeah, it's really weird, isn't it? It's because what tahini is is ground sesame seeds, It's sort of a carbohydrate, and when you add water to it, the carbohydrate is drawn to the liquid, so it does seize up. And the only way to remedy that is to add more liquid and add more liquid and add more liquid, and then finally you'll get to a point where you've got a consistency that you like. I mean, the same is true with chocolate. You know, it will seize up initially, but then if you add the right percentage of liquid to the chocolate, then you will end up with something that's desirable and pourable. Chris, further thoughts? I was testing a recipe the other day for a soccer tort, the famous chocolate cake from Vienna. The chocolate frosting, the ganache, it was a very unusual method. She made a sugar syrup and then added the chopped chocolate to the sugar syrup, which has two problems. The heat, obviously, is not a good thing for chocolate, but the sugar syrup obviously has had some water in it, and it's seized immediately. So it's a little bit like tahini. It's the presence of liquid of water immediately sees the chocolate. It's really the same and principle. And then what happened? I threw it out and I made it. <laughs> no, I, 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 I literally threw it out, chopped eight ounces of chocolate finely, uh, heated up a cup or two of cream, poured it over the chocolate like you're supposed to, and it was fine. Yeah. By the way, just to continue the conversation about tahini, if you buy a really good brand of tahini, it doesn't tend to separate as much and you're not going to have this problem. It tends to be lighter in color and a little bit more liquid. Some of the brands I've found, the supermarket classic brands I won't name, are very pasty and dark and over-roasted. I think we should also mention that once you open tahini, you should definitely refrigerate it because it is a seed, and like other nuts and seeds, it goes rancid quickly. So I have to review my chemistry. If I understood you right, it's because carbohydrates are getting hydrated, and that turns them solid. They're attracted to the water, and then they then clump together in clumps of carbohydrates. Uh, But if there's a sufficient amount of liquid in the solution, then they will eventually break apart and float around, Yeah, I think. But any tahini is going to seize. Right. I appreciate you taking the time to answer my question. Cindy, our pleasure. Thank you so much for calling. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Next up, it's time to find out what Adam Gopnik is thinking about this week. Adam, what's going on in the world of cooking? Well, I'll tell you, the thing that I've been brooding on, and you know I'm always brooding on something culinary, is the hidden tactile dimension of our gastronomic experience. It began with a very simple thing. I was making my wife's very favorite dessert, simple but delicious, which is an apple crisp. And I began making the, the crisp topping by mixing it together with my hands. I had the butter, and I had the oatmeal, and I had the flour, and I had the brown sugar, and a little bit of cinnamon. And one of my kids, now grown but still ever inquisitive, said, Dad, why are you doing it that way with your hands and not with the mixer? And I realized that I had always done it that way. And it's one of those tasks that, to my mind, you have to do with your hands. There's um, no way to, how should we put it, skumush the butter together adequately with the oatmeal and the brown sugar, except with your hands. You know how it is. If you put it in the the mixer, it gets too homogenous, far too homogenous. You want variety. You want little bits of 
butter and you want little surprises of brown sugar and oatmeal. I couldn't explain this very well, but I knew it was a task I had to do with my hands. And I began thinking, Chris, about the number of things in the kitchen that we can only do with our hands. Um, It's a famous thing, and people talk about it all the time, about how we in the West have become removed from the basic food work of the hands, right? That we substitute forks and knives. We did it long ago, and it's very much part of our culture to distance ourselves both from our food, but also from the act of making it through instruments and utensils and implements of all kinds. But it's funny if you think about it at all, because the truth is is we have a very complicated hierarchy about what we will touch with our hands in the food world and what we will not. We think nothing of eating a sandwich with our hands, right? We often hear it said that in Eastern cultures, in India or Ethiopia, for example, people eat everything with their hands and they find our need to use utensils to be prissy and and kind of obsessive and puritanical. But we are more than content to eat a hoagie with our hands. We're more than content to eat a hamburger with our hands. We have a whole range of foods that we do eat with our hands. But of course, the French, a friend of mine's French, he eats all of his sandwiches, usually without a top piece of bread, with a knife and fork. Uh, you're, now, as always, Christopher, you are anticipating <laughs> one of Sorry. the places that I am about to go. And that is exactly that we make a distinction between the artisanal and folk side of our eating and preparing and the artistic and high side of our eating and preparing. And the artistic and high side of it, which, as we've discussed so many times, derives in one way or another from French restaurant practices, we still do with utensils, whether we're eating it or we're preparing it. We can't imagine a handmade souffle. There are many things you can do with your hands better than you can do with an instrument. You cannot whip egg whites with your hands. But there are so many other things in the kitchen that we have to do with our hands. Rubbing olive oil into a leg of lamb, that's something we can only do with our hands. We could use a brush, I suppose, but it would it would seem sort of pointless. Um, stripping herbs, putting a flavored butter inside uh, chicken skin, all of those things are things we have to do with our hands. And as I was trying to kind of review and itemize all the things we do with our hands in the kitchen, I began thinking about a research project that I had done several years ago, which is about the science of touch and how invisible touch is to us most of the time in Hmm. our lives. It's what I called it the unsung sense. And at that simple moment, when we begin to blend together brown sugar and butter and oatmeal, our skin becomes alive. I'm sure you've had that experience. And so much of the joy of cooking comes to us through touch, and yet we rarely talk about it. So I am going to devote much of the next year to re-inhabiting, if I can, the tactile dimension of cooking and try and make touch matter as much in my own gastronomic experience as smell and taste and all of those others more familiar dimensions. Well, it's almost as if touch has become a vertical, you know, romance, sex, etc. It has nothing to do with the rest of our lives except for that. Which is, which is so strange, which is not true in other cultures, of course. Right? Exactly so. And one of the things we, we always take in from other cultures, and if you go online, you'll see wonderful writing by people like Ruby Tando and so on, talking about how vital, how um, determinative touch is in Indian cooking, both in the way you prepare it and in the way that you consume it. You know, a few years ago, I was in, in Dakar in Senegal, and we were tasting a sauce or whatever we were making, and the cook put it on the back of her hand mm-hmm. to taste. And so, and this happens in lots of places I've been, food is tasted on the back of the hand. Um, and, and it makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. I now do that myself. It's actually quite a very different experience than tasting it off a metal spoon. Absolutely, or even off a wooden spoon. And I realized too, Chris, how much of our, our prime experiences of food come to us through touch rather than through taste. My oldest memory of food is when my mother would be making strudel uh, when I was very small with my um, one-year-older sister. And we would gather beneath the table that she would roll the paper-thin strudel dough out on, and it would hang over the edges of the table like a tent. And we were allowed to pick from that overhang Hmm. of the strudel dough and eat it. I have no memory of its taste, but oh, the touch 
the elasticity as we pulled it down secretly. It almost had a criminal overtang. That touch <laughs> stays with me to this day. That sounds like the beginning of a Raul Dahl book. Or an overlooked passage of Proust, perhaps. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course you would pick Proust. Uh, Adam, thank you very much. Put the touch back in taste uh, into cooking. Thank you so much. Exactly. That's the motto on our license plate this year. That was New Yorker staff writer Adam Gopnik. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or just want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or learn about our magazine and latest cookbook, Vegetables. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tureski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. 